welcome back to the Decarb Connect podcast. I have been enjoying a nice little break, a bit of a holiday, but I'm very excited to be on screen. Obviously, you're just hearing the audio, but I'm on screen with Liz Gilligan, who's CEO of Material Evolution. And anyone that listens to this podcast regularly will know that disruptor stories are really the ones that get me the most excited, you know, the kind of the, the, the stories and activities of those people that are pulling up new technologies, new materials, new ways of working that really could uh, drive a significant change to the kind of amount of CO2, the amount of carbon uh, that our heavy industries are emitting. So Liz, quite a drum roll intro there. Why don't you tell us a bit about material evolution, but also what's brought you to this moment in time? So for me, the climate crisis is terrifying. Like it's a terrifying thing that kind of feels like there's nothing you can do about it. Um, so instead of being terrified, I decided to get a PhD in cement, um, dug into the problem of emissions deeper, um, convinced my parents we'd convert our garage into a lab. So this could be my side hustle um, and worked on the solution or our solution to the cement kind of issue, which is using geopolymer technology and um, machine learning algorithms to change the materials we make cement from to reduce emissions. And from memory, I'm sure I remember this when we first had our chat, your background originally was architecture, is that right? Yeah, so I wanted to build the next cities that would change the world, um, but actually what I was obsessed with was what we make them from, like well, how do we choose materials, why do we choose materials? Um, so I worked at Foster and Partners for a bit, designed the concrete used on the Apple campus and things like that. Um, thought I knew cements and concretes. Obviously, I had no idea. Did my PhD in it and was like, oh, this is a whole new field. Like, this is kind of the way you can change and make a big difference. Um, so that's how the company kind of started was, can I make a difference? Can one person make a big difference? Can you convince other people to get excited about cement? It's probably not the sexiest of um, subjects, but can you get other people excited about it? Can we all make a difference? And how do we make that difference? So the answer is yes, clearly, because as we were just saying before I hit record, you've now got a team of 15. You're permanently in a recruitment and additional finance mode. So you've obviously, the, the yes is yes, yes, we can get people excited about this. So tell us a bit about the, the geopolymer concept. What, what does it mean? What What is it that you guys are developing? Yeah, so geopolymers are 3D nanostructures that, kind of stack on top of each other and it's basically a different way to make cement um chemically different kind of it can be made of waste so our current product is 95 percent waste um it saves 85 percent on co2 emissions so we're not firing our material we don't use any heat we're using different technologies to phase change our material so basically we're making them more sticky by applying different technologies to them so this allows us to access a wider variety of kind of industrial waste and use that at scale. So for me, that's the really exciting thing. Like, it's great that it works, but does it work at scale? How big can we go? How can we really solve this problem? For us, we want to reduce a gigaton of carbon by five years of production. So we want to be really aggressive about this. How do we do that? How do we really kind of make it so it's localized so that you're not shipping waste around the world so that you truly understand what your local commodity kind of industry can do for you and then how you can make materials from that? And and the waste that you're repurposing, what 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 are its characteristics that it needs to have for it to be, you know, like the right kind of product for you to work with? 
Yeah, so it depends on kind of what geopolymer scaffold we're going to use. We can make it from aluminosilicates. We can do different ferrites and kind of iron-based ones. Um, at the moment, we're focusing on metal and mining slags, so kind of um, the big industrial waste. Um, there's 190 million tonnes in the UK alone of historical steel waste, which blows my mind. Um, so there's a lot of it, and it's not used in kind of any real way. So can we look at it in a different way? Can we see that as a resource and a great resource for the UK? To put it in context, the UK uses about 15 million tonnes of cement a year. So we've got quite a good supply with these raw materials. And just for 100% clarity, like the, the point here is this is not a technology that makes cement or concrete a bit better. This is a replacement material, which we'll, we'll come on to later, some of the additional kind of complexities that that can bring with it but your demonstration tech um that really is that that's the goal isn't it is this isn't a sort of oh let's make things a bit better it's a step change a line in the sand a new material to use in different concrete construction applications yeah so ours is a completely different step change it's getting rid of ordinary portland cement completely from concrete mixes it gives us an 85% co2 reduction which is good but for us it's not good enough um, we want to be carbon negative. Um, so for us, that's the next stage is be carbon negative. Like 85% is good and it's really good, but it's not enough and it won't be enough in the current condition we are with the climate crisis. So let's let's take a step back. You said at the beginning that part of your kind of your journey to this point in time had been commandeering your parents' garage. So where have you come since then? Talk talk us through, if you can, paint a picture on our audio podcast <laughs> of your demonstration technology. Where are you at at the moment, and how has it evolved from that first garage <laughs> garage version one? Yeah. So. The garage was, there was three of us, so we've grown a little bit since then. Um, we've scaled the technology so we can now produce 96 tons a day. Um, so we're not just making it on the bench top. We know that this scales and it scales in a good way. Um, we've got a great kind of team around us. We've hired some amazing people. It always makes me very happy that other people get excited about this, that we're not just a team of three nerds hanging out. We're a team of 15 now. Um, so the kind of stages have been customer trials kind of that scaling piece just looking at how it works like how do you scale this because i find a lot of technologies don't really think about it being like a customer-led problem and for me it is there's like it has to fit into the industry it has to be seamless it has to do all these things great if the science works but if you don't understand how your customer makes things you become a problem another problem that they have to solve in this kind of process of making concrete so we've been working really closely with customers on what they need how they need it why they use it that way can it be blown into silos can it not can it do this can it do that why does it not work so we've kind of basically tried to break our product for the last year and make sure that it's really robust that we know that they're going to add too much water to it we know that they're going to do all of these things and how do you make it so that it behaves and plays the same as OPC, but without the carbon reduction. And the types of customers that you're working with at this early stage, like what, what sorts of organizations are they? Um, so they're big precast kind of companies making different products. So blocks, paving, things like that. We're really going for those kind of lower risk products. We understand that it's a huge step change that we're asking for. But with these lower risk products, you can 
build trust in the industry and then you start to build up. We are developing our first ready mix product as well at the moment. So for us, we think that the standards, if you work them right, you can get them to work for you to allow you to do these things. So you mentioned, I think you said, is it 96 tons a day at the moment that you can produce? What What's the next step? Like, you know, talk us through the kind of various levels of scale you need to get to before it's really like a kind of, you know, commercial scale product. Where, where do you need to get to next? So the next stage is we're looking to co-locate with a customer to produce 32,000 tons with them that they'll use for their products while simultaneously building the bigger factory. So the bigger factory will look at producing 150,000 tons in the first year of its production. And timeline for both of those things? So we're looking to have the first one done by March, so the first stage by March, and then start building the other ones simultaneously. So I think that'll probably take around 18 months with securing silicon and all of that fun stuff that comes with manufacturing. Well, I guess that kind of neatly takes me into my next question. So we've talked a little bit about the material from waste that, that is integral to your process. Um, I know, I think you mentioned when we first spoken that you'd actually, you'd already moved, haven't you? You moved from the south south of the UK up to the Midlands. And, and I believe, I'm trying to remember now our conversation, but I think you said that that was a lot to do with the material that you needed and the waste that you needed. So just talk us through um, how you're integrating that uh, waste and, and how different types of waste get integrated into this process too. Yeah, so no, we moved the company from Devon, so sunny Devon to um, Middlesbrough in October last year um, because there is a um, old steelworks up here. So the steelworks has 60 million tons of waste on it. Um, for us, the really interesting parts are these pieces that people discard. How do you really understand kind of how things are discard? And can you use like an urban mining kind of approach to them? So can you understand them as like urban quarries? Can we mine them the same way we would mine a limestone? So can we understand the kind of mineralogy across those piles, how they've weathered? And then can we make them into cement? So for us, it's once you understand the data, you can interpret that and make it into cement. So for us, we're very data driven as a company. It's how do you collect data on a certain material? And then how can you then understand that and use our different kind of phase changing techniques to create that into a cement? Okay. And then in practical terms, this, this waste material, is that free? I mean, do you have to buy it? How, what's, how does that affect your kind of, you know, the actual kind of cost model of what you're doing at the moment? Um, so at the moment we pay for our waste. Some wastes are free, some are not. So depending on the source material and how consistent it is, some of them we pay for, some of them we don't. Um, it's something we're working towards the kind of techno economic model is to be cheaper than OPC. Um, obviously at the moment we're making it in boutique batches as we call it um, but as we scale that cost com comes down rapidly for us we know that cost is king that if we can't be cost comparative it makes it a lot harder to scale in the industry and we don't want that green premium to be an issue at the moment it is more expensive like I'm not going to pretend it's not we're making it in very small batches but the goal is that we scale and as we scale the cost reductions come down and with the hope that we will be cheaper than cement. And then I'll come back um, in a moment, actually, to that kind of phase of investment, how you scale. But just while I'm thinking of it, I know one of the things that came up early in Decarb Connects 
you know, evolution was this, there can sometimes be a, a bit of a tension between a, a true disruptor, a replacement technology and what incumbent industries, you know, how, how they're bringing their own product and, and activities to market. How, how have you experienced that? How have you been, how have you come across the established industries in this space? And, and what's the, you know, what's your experience of that been? Um, so we've been quite um, lucky, I think. We've kind of stayed away from anyone who makes cement because we don't align with that vision. It's a different, it's a completely different technology. We want to not make cement the way that cement's made. So we've really spoken to the people who make concrete. So there's a lot of precasters in the UK. They are at varying scales. They don't make cement. So we help them be, as we call it, better bakers. So we make the flour, they're the good bakers. So we help them to get kind of a unique selling point in a market that is quite saturated. We help them to bring that R&D arm that maybe the big cement companies have, but not many concrete companies have. We allow them to be innovative. So for us, we found that everyone's pretty open. Like I really think in the last two years, the word decarbonization, the word sustainability has become kind of a hot topic. It's no longer that you have to convince people that that's a thing. People want that. They win projects on that. It's really changed the conversation because we don't have to do the hard sell that, you know, this should be an issue and that we should care about this. So I found it quite an open industry in terms of that change that we want to change, but it's slow. Like, let's not pretend it's, it's slow to get started, but I do think that this is the time for change like this is where it's going to change and it's in that amazing kind of tipping point where i think change is happening organically like people are really pushing for it and it's great to see customers demanding it it's great to see kind of big incumbents demanding it from people who supply them and i think that's where it changes because the money is what's going to push it however much i'd love to be the idealist it's the money that's going to push it they're gonna if you can push that as how you win contracts, you change how the industry works. Yeah, I I also remember from when we spoke that one of, I guess one of the drivers that's very particular to construction materials for the pace of changes is also linked to uh, standards and material standards. Obviously with a brand new kind of material like the one that you're developing, this is this is must be an ongoing kind of piece of work to kind of work out how to work with those standards, how to get them changed. What, what's the story with that? What's, what's your view and your perspective on material standards and, and how can a true disruptor like you, you know, get, get to scale with, with what's in place at the moment? Um, so I think the standards are interesting, um, is the nice way to put it. Um, I think that if we really want to change how things are done, then the standards have to change. I think we need standards because they give safety, they do all those things. But I think they need to become mechanical standards instead of prescriptive material standards. So do all the same testing, but do it in a different way. There's currently a PAS 8820 that we fit into, which is like an alkali activated cement standard, but it's not a full British standard. But there's just the speed at what they change standards that blows my mind. So. I think it is 8500, which is the standard for ready mix cement. I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. One of those numbers. Um, it took them 16 years to change one kind of clause in it. And for me, like, blows my mind. Blows my mind that 
that's a success. And 16 years is too long. So for us, we're looking at how we can work with the standards, but also be disruptive in those and work with customers because customers want it. There are customers who will work with it without the standards. So how do we work with standards, but also not let that slow innovation? So it's finding the right customers who understand what you're doing and then working with them to kind of realign those different things. Hmm. Okay. Well, then let's come back to, to the scale-up story. So where are you at in terms of investment and in terms of like the, the phasing of your growth? Yeah, so we are looking to do a fundraising round um in the next couple of weeks maybe month um maybe longer who knows but we are looking to look at start fundraising again to allow us to do those scale up pieces to allow us to build that first of its kind facility and then start the ball rolling on that second factory um for us kind of it just makes logical sense for us we're very customer driven on how we can work with people um then we're looking to kind of scale the staff and how we kind of look at spreading across Europe and the US. And then next essential hires, yeah, tell, tell us a bit about that. Like what, what are the kinds of skills, the types of people that you really need? Yeah, so we're looking, um, for me, it's people who really love it. Like I think for me, that's the first thing we look for is someone who just kind of loves and wants to change the world, change the planet, make a difference. Um, then we're looking from everyone from finance people to algorithm people to um, operatives to scientists. We have kind of that whole range of skills that we want. Um, but the biggest thing being, are you passionate about changing something? Can you be part of this disruptive business? Um, and we've been really lucky with kind of the people we've been able to attract and how kind of that team is really building. So it's a really exciting kind of time to join the company, I think because we're at that stage where we're rapidly growing, like roles are becoming kind of more defined. There's that kind of really good upward motion. Because for me, I always want to promote from within. Like if you want to do that, tell me, we'll have a go. Let's have a play. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting time, an interesting stage you're at to join, isn't it? Because it's you could still have a role that fundamentally puts your fingerprints on the product and the evolution of the company, but you're also you are joining something that has good foundations and a good kind of launch pad to grow from. So it's definitely an exciting point, I think, to, to join a company like yours. Mm -hmm. um, so round to my last question then. So I, I started this really by saying that you're the ultimate kind of disruptor, you know, not looking for incremental change, but really looking for replacement material, uh, a replacement opportunity to lower carbon. When you think about what you've learned so far, what would you say to other uh, entrepreneurs or other ventures looking to disrupt whether it's in steel chem cement just what general lessons do you think you've learned about that kind of true disruption where you're not just tweaking but you are creating a brand new path forward um it's a really good question i think it's finding that network like finding the heroes in the industry is really important finding someone who just gets it and is gonna do what it takes to get that across the line I think those people are invaluable to companies um I also think finding the right people to join you as part of the journey so who you hire is really important people who get that it's changes that it moves it's very it's an evolution and that are willing to kind of take that jump with you 
I also think not being too precious about your plans that this is how it's going to work or that you think you know how they buy and work and learning that everyone's different they all buy in different ways that it's a bit more of a handshake kind of deal dealings that everything's not going to be clean as you'd once hoped you're going to have to kind of roll with the punches a bit more and just accept that sometimes we just go and do it on a handshake and deliver material anyway I also think that um, what we learned was that by giving the product away you create really strong relationships so you don't we've never charged anyone for a product yet which seems counterintuitive to every startup because the goal is to get money in as quick as possible so for us we've always been like oh we won't charge you because we want a lasting relationship with you we know it takes longer to get that through like I don't want to work with you just on one product I want to work with you for the next 10 so we've really kind of maybe detrimental to the company we've really been like oh we don't need your money for this this is about working together this is about creating relationships this is about building those connections to last longer um which is kind of against everything every VC will tell you but I believe that that changes those relationships from being very transactional to being very much about how you disrupt together and a partnership Mm -hmm. yeah so let's just have a, a think about that model then that you're mentioning where right now Um, your goal is to develop good partners, to develop those customer relationships. And one way of doing that has not to be charging, not to make it about the money at this very early stage. But clearly, when you're looking for your next round of investment, this is a topic of conversation, I'm sure. So what's what's the route to becoming a a revenue generating startup? Yeah, so we're pre-revenue still. And we could not be, we could have kind of got a couple hundred grand in the bank and kind of scaled it. But I believe that in a kind of industry built on relationships, we don't do that. That doesn't make sense. We want those bigger kind of contracts. So next year we're looking to make 9.5 million, but that is because we've waited, because we've built those lasting relationships. And I think anyone who works in this industry understands that it's really relationship driven. You're creating those longer lasting relationships. I don't want them just to buy one product from me. I want them to buy 10. And I want 10, 15, 20 years of kind of loyalty and partnerships with them. So I think that's for me where it makes sense. Obviously, from a venture capitalist fundraising point of view, everyone wants to know why you can't make money and they assume it's because you can't. But I believe it's about those longer goals, those longer term relationships, which take time and involve you as a small startup, making that sacrifice that revenue is not the top priority. Well, amazing, really great to hear where you've got to, which I just, I love this image in my mind's eye of you just hands on hips telling your parents you're taking over the garage. And then now you've got, you know, (laughs) 15 people, you're 96 tons a day, you're on your way to thousands of tons a day. I mean, it's just, it's a really fascinating story. So we wish you all the best in this next funding round. And hopefully when you've uh, secured that cash and ramped up to the next phase, we can, we can have you back on. Um, But thank you very much, Liz. Really good to have talked to you. No, thank you so much for having me. Many thanks for listening to the Decarb Connect podcast. We work with clients across the industrial sectors, specifically those who are tasked with decarbonizing the most energy intensive products and materials that we use every day. If you have an interest in uh, learning more about either our members network our reports or our event series, do get in touch with us at decarbconnect.com. 
Or if you'd like to take part in the podcast, email me, alex at ac at decarbconnect.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>